And we start the show in my favorite place, the Roto Underworld Radio YouTube channel. We like to post short clips, bursts of information about particular players on YouTube. We have a two-minute segment on why you should stash Kenneth Dixon. Kenneth Dixon, who backs up Terrence West and is clearly better than Terrence West, seems like a good idea on that fact alone. One of our more innocuous highlight clips ever has close to 50 comments. Is he worth stashing? Is he not worth stashing? Shut the fuck up! You shut the fuck up! This video is old! Amazing. Eventually, two commenters began arguing viciously and challenged one another to a one-on-one fantasy league. And one will be joining the other's fantasy league to prove his manhood, to prove his fantasy football acumen. Yes. What? But the last two comments we got were not just two wild animals grunting at each other. The comment attached to the clip, Aaron Rodgers is holding back Jeff Janis. Reads as follows, your love affair with JJ is funny as you knock a Hall of Fame quarterback over a potential great receiver. By the way, how did JJ do the last two weeks compared to Devontae Adams? 25 catches and a bunch of touchdowns for Devontae Adams. That's how much better Devontae Adams is playing. Jeff Janis may have arrived, but I need to see more games with high production. JJ is still molding, so be patient. Stop sucking his cock and balls. He is athletic and has a lot of potential, so go nice and easy, fanboys. Don't pull your pants down quite yet. Well, that guy pretty much summed it up. The next comment attached to the video, Broncos running back CJ Anderson's career is doomed. (laughs) I love these titles. The titles alone upset so many people, and I love it. Clickbait! Clickbait! Yeah, no shit, it's clickbait. It's on YouTube. What do you think it is? Of course it's clickbait. What? Clickbait! (laughs) So here it goes about my recent C.J. Anderson analysis. There's some deep irony here from an analyst who consistently displays exactly the same issues that you're so dismissive of in others. Ooh, here we go. Lobbing the hypocrisy grenade. You're blatantly mischaracterizing the current situation. For example, Booker getting his shot due to Anderson being injured is very far from surpassing Anderson due to being better. Can Booker be better? That's entirely possible. But he's not better yet, especially in things like, wait for it, diagnosing protections. Oh, yes, yes. So eloquent. I was so ready for you to give me real meaningful analysis, illuminating why C.J. Anderson is better than Devontae Booker, and at the end, all I got was a bag of pass protection dog shit. Let's go ahead and light that on fire, please. Diagnosing protections. The running back pass protection fallacy is that a running back has to be good at running routes and pass blocking. He does not. If he's a good route runner and a pass catcher, then the team will always flare out the running back when the defense blitzes and the running back becomes the hot read. 
Theo Riddick is the hot read for the Detroit Lions because he's a fantastic receiver, a much better receiver than he is a blocker. Devontae Booker will be the hot read for Trevor Simeon. He won't be asked to stay in and pass block because that will not optimize his abilities. As long as you're good at one or the other, you can be in the game in all passing situations. So enough with this pass blocking fallacy. Oh, but there's more. For all of your arrogant surety about the foolishness of quote-unquote Anderson guys, you're simply a Booker guy as biased as anyone else. You fucking hypocrite. I added the hypocrite at the end, but that's what he wanted to say. Have I ever said that I'm an unbiased voice? Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. When did I say I wasn't biased? Hello? As long as you go into a discussion knowing everyone is biased, only then can you have an honest conversation. Identify the bias, explain the roots of it, and explore whether or not that bias challenges the validity of the evidence and the argument. That's all you can do. That's what we do on this show. We are equal parts identifying the bias in the analysis of others and self-identifying my own bias. And I was proud of myself last week. I didn't play Devontae Booker in GPPs. I'm a Devontae Booker guy, clearly. If there was going to be a my guy bias infecting my DFS decisions in week eight, it would have been on Devontae Booker. Because I liked Devontae Booker in all formats until I saw the ownership percentage. (laughs) Devontae Booker was the best value daily fantasy play of the year in week eight. An all-purpose skill set thrust into an every-down workhorse role for a team that emphasizes the run. And he was priced like a backup on FanDuel and DraftKings. So, of course, everyone boarded Devontae Booker last week. All aboard! And we did, too. Go to the playerprofiler.com DFS lineup genius, and you saw Devontae Booker in every lineup. Because, of course, but then the ownership projections were released Thursday night, and we saw Devontae Booker projected to be owned in 75% of daily fantasy lineups. And I have been on a quest to find that friction point between ownership percentage and value in guaranteed prize pool tournaments in particular. And I was excited to see this outlier case, this Devontae Booker, 75% owned. I'd never seen that before. This was the first time all year we'd seen someone with such a high ownership. But he was also the best value we've seen all year. The ownership was rational. But I contend that even though the ownership was rational, and even though the winner of the Millionaire Maker on DraftKings had Devontae Booker in his lineup, I believe playing Devontae Booker in GPPs in week eight didn't make any sense. And I take a lot of pride in that position because I am a Booker guy. But I felt like at 75% owned, if you played Booker in tournaments, you were boarding the Titanic. It's luxurious. It's the best value of any mode of transportation across the Northern Atlantic you're going to find. Of course. But those are dangerous waters in the NFL. And if those who make it to the other side are the ones that get all the money, you may be better off letting all of your peers take the ocean liner and you take a sailboat and you hope that big ocean liner sinks and your sailboat catches the winds just right. That's how GPPs are won. 
They're not won by playing Devontae Booker. I understand the winner played Devontae Booker, and that's unfortunate. I couldn't believe I was looking at someone's lineup disappointed they played Devontae Booker. I couldn't believe I had arrived in that place as a fantasy analyst and a Devontae Booker mega fan. But that's where I was, looking at the winning millionaire maker lineup and seeing Devontae Booker made me sick. That roster won despite playing the wrong running back in Devontae Booker. It was a low-scoring week, and that roster and that point total usually doesn't win the millionaire maker. So I take some solace in that fact. I take solace because I believe that if any player at any position, regardless of his value factor, if he is more than 50% owned, you can't play him in GPPs. It makes no sense. Think about it. If 75% of your competitors are playing Devontae Booker and Devontae Booker leaves the game early with a concussion like Spencer Ware did, Spencer Ware, who was 50% owned, then all of a sudden, three quarters of your competitors have been wiped out. You watch the Tour de France and you can't imagine how so many cyclists can pedal in unison in such tight quarters. How do they do it? There's some sort of hive mind that allows these cyclists to pedal in such a close-knit pack around corners and up and over hills. Some of the scenarios you watch unfold during the Tour de France are some of the most impressive feats in all of sports. But now imagine you're pedaling and three-quarters of the cyclists just, just veer off the mountain. Suddenly, everything opens up from the beginning at the starting point. Your chances of winning a millionaire maker are many, many, many times lower than the chances that Devontae Booker will get hurt in the first half and will not return, blowing up everybody that played Devontae Booker. So that's an easy call. Let me put it to you this way. The easiest way to win the millionaire maker on DraftKings would be if there were a glitch. And Antonio Brown facing the Detroit Lions without Darius Slay, was somehow priced at $3,000. Imagine that. Everyone would be playing Antonio Brown. Everyone. Except a handful of individuals that understand that there is no value factor that can override exceptionally high ownership. That would be the ideal scenario for me because the vast majority of people would play Antonio Brown. I would then create a lineup that simply does not include Antonio Brown. And I would hope that Antonio Brown would have a very bad game. Three catches, 30 yards for Antonio Brown. Or even better, he gets hurt. Well, then everyone is locked into a very low number on their roster. And I'm one of the only ones without that handicap. My path to a million dollars just opened up. The road cleared. At that point, it would just be me flying down the road, sun shining on my face, breathing in the air, soon to be smelling the money. So Devontae Booker last week was the Titanic, the highest grossing movie of all time, one of the highest owned running backs of all time, an ill-conceived voyage and an ill-conceived GPP play. Now Buzzard writes in, it's all 22 tape. You moron. The good news is we have a lot of new listeners. Listenership is up 10x year over year. I am stunned and grateful for that fact. But a lot of you don't get the show. You enjoy it. There's something about it you like, but you haven't been fully indoctrinated yet. You haven't gone back and listened to all the old shows where I intentionally called it anything but the all 22 tape, the all 42 tape, the all 24 tape. 
That was an homage to an old bit we did a year ago. Of course I know it's the All-22 tape. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Who do you think you're listening to? <laughs> do you really think I needed that correction? That email came across my desk, I read it, and I said, Oh, God, yes, of course. It's 22 players on the field at once, not 32. How could I have been so foolish? It's 11 on 11, not 16 on 16. Really? Oh, God, he's right. Thank you for that. Very helpful. Not helpful at all. But that's not to say I'm infallible. I'm wrong about a lot of things. One thing I wasn't wrong about, though, Blake Bortles. And yet, we're higher on Blake Bortles this week than most analysts. Go to Fantasy Pros. You'll see Blake Bortles well outside the top 12. And I don't understand why. Kansas City is not some onerous pass defense. They give up exactly the average number of points to opposing quarterbacks. We have Blake Bortles ranked at number 10, while a lot of analysts have him ranked outside the top 15. Why? Because they're reactionary. Nothing has changed with Blake Bortles. He's still the same Blake Bortles we've always known. We know he's not hashtag good at football, and it doesn't matter. Because the Jaguars will experience garbage time, and Blake Bortles will get his touchdowns. It doesn't matter how ugly they are. I love Devontae Booker. I was heartbroken to see him win someone a million dollars last week. I hate Blake Bortles, but I'll happily stream him this week. So I've been right about Blake Bortles all along. There is an individual that's been very wrong about Blake Bortles all along. And I've noticed recently that he's subtly pivoted. He realized that the public has turned against Blake Bortles and he has turned with them. He ran out into the street to fight the angry mob wearing a Blake Bortles jersey. He realized, oh, this angry mob is going to rip me to shreds. Let me quickly turn this Blake Bortles jersey inside out throw some blood on it, and just start mocking Blake Bortles incessantly. Yes, that's the move. That was the move by at Chaps on football Twitter. Yes, people love Chaps. Yes, yes. Chaps is good for two things. The worst possible sports analysis and fake news. Chaps is a troll parody account. I know that because people think I'm a troll parody account. So many have said, I didn't follow you at first because I thought you were a parody. Parody of what? Chaps is a parody. Chaps is changing his avatar to Ian Rappaport and tweeting fake news. And when he's not tweeting fake news, he's tweeting baseless sports opinions. Chaps believe that the Jaguars solved their quarterback problems with Blake Bortles. For years, he insisted upon this. Now, uh, never mind. But you see this often when the parody accounts try their hand at serious sports analysis. They realize very quickly, oh, I'm not good at this. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm going to stick to fake news. And that's where we're at with Chaps because Chaps said, oh, fuck it. I know what I am. I write jokes and I play make-believe with my Twitter account. What I'm good at is catering to the lowest common denominator in sports. So why not go to Barstool, the worldwide leader in unsophisticated, lowest common denominator sports analysis and unfunny hijinks like, let's see how much milk you can drink without puking. Ah, Barstool Sports, the perfect place for at chaps. As if they didn't have enough bottom-of-the-barrel, oafish personalities, the Barstool Sports people just had to add chaps to their roster, yes. Another gem on the Golden Corral crown of utterly useless sports content at Barstool Sports.
Barstool Sports, winning the race to the bottom across the sports media landscape. Welcome, chaps! I mean, how many more times can you change your avatar to Adam Schefter or Ian Rappaport and tweet out fake news? I mean, how long does that go on? What's the shelf life of that shtick? We're going to find out with at chaps. Which fantasy football parody account has the longest shelf life? Is it Kenny Darter, the original C.D. Carter parody account? I think it might be. At first round quarterback, mocking C.D. Carter, J.J. Zacharyson, and the Living the Stream podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. But the Kenny Darter shtick was funny two years ago when people were actually drafting quarterbacks in the first round. No one, not even the least sophisticated fantasy gamer, would think about drafting a quarterback in the first round anymore. That parody account has become obsolete. The Kenny Darter Twitter account was a singular joke with a very short shelf life, and yet... The person who manages the Kenny Darter account continues to log into that account and tweet from it. Think about it. This guy is essentially continuing to tell a joke that stopped being funny two years ago. And you take a step back and you think about what is a parody account. I don't respect anyone who sets up a parody account. Don't get me wrong. I want to set up a parody account. There are a number of fantasy analysts I would love to set up a parody account of and just bot tweet, contrive gibberish that sounds like something they would say. I would love to do that. But if I did that, I would be a useless asshole. It's one thing to fantasize about doing it one day. It's another thing to actually sit down and key in the information on the Twitter signup page to create a parody account. When you think about a person in the throes of setting up a parody account on Twitter has to be one of the most pathetic acts in human history. It's one thing to set up a parody account for a very short burst of time, make some jokes and move on with your life. It's another thing to continue to log into that parody account and to continue to troll others from anonymity for years and years from that account. That's impossible to fathom pathetic. So I will never follow Kenny Darter. I will never retweet Kenny Darter. When it stopped being funny two years ago, that account stopped existing in my mind. And Kenny Darter is the worst possible Twitter account because A, it's a fantasy football account. B, it's parroting the most parodied personality, C.D. Carter. C.D. Carter has more parody accounts by a factor of 10 than any other fantasy football personality. So the Kenny Darter account represents the absolute heights of unoriginality. And now the premise of that particular parody has become obsolete. Joke's over. You can move on now. You can go on with your life if you have one. Yet whoever manages the Kenny Darter account continues to troll from that account. Whoever is continuing to tweet from that account from a position of anonymity, that's the worst part of it. It's one thing to tell a joke and put your name on it. It's one thing to mock someone and put your name on it. But it becomes pathetic when you do it from anonymity. That's when it becomes cowardice. Anonymous accounts shouldn't be allowed. If you're going to set up a social media presence, you should be required to put your name on the things you're saying. With very few exceptions, anonymous accounts should be reserved for the few people who have actually been threatened. In those particular cases, okay, you can set up an anonymous account. Steve Bartman, before last night, should have been allowed to set up 
an anonymous account, but not some pathetic asshole who doesn't want his boss to find out that he's an unproductive employee who spends two hours every week disparaging the opinions and observations of other human beings on social media. And even if you allowed Bartman to have an anonymous account, the anonymity would require conditions. You can't say shitty things to people on social media from an anonymous account. If you're going to have an anonymous account, you're only allowed to read tweets and send tweets that don't try to fuck with people. Some of the biggest assholes on the planet are those who denigrate others from anonymous social media accounts. But if you go ahead and put your name on it, you can say whatever the fuck you want. And we're going to talk to the original, don't give a fuck, DGAF fantasy sports analyst on this show today, Josh Hermsmeyer from Rotoviz. But before we talk to Josh, I have some good news. The people that know halftime are getting serious. They've given Roto Underworld Radio listeners a promo code with a deposit bonus for no halftime. Because you've been staring at your weekly fantasy opponent and thinking to yourself, I would love to challenge just one of his players, not his entire team, but your fantasy sports service doesn't allow this to happen. But that's why no halftime exists. You can put... Odell Beckham Jr. up against Antonio Brown. You can just put Cam Newton up against Aaron Rodgers. Ezekiel Elliott against David Johnson. Creating a challenge takes just a couple seconds on no halftime. That's why I love the app. And it's not just NFL. You can do NHL, NBA, PGA challenges. Go to playerprofiler.com. Go to any player page and click play David Johnson on no halftime. You can try it for free with $0 in challenges. Use the promo code PLAYER100 and get started today. Because I know, I know, some of you are three and five. I get it. I get it. I'm with you. I'm actually not with you. All my teams are doing great. But if one of my teams was not doing well, the first thing I would do is download the No Halftime app, enter the promo code PLAYER100, and set up an individual player challenge. Now, I'm excited to talk to Josh Hermsmeyer. Follow him at Frisco Josh, F-R-I-S-C-O-J-O-S-H. His work on Rotoviz is getting a lot of attention right now. It's well justified. Let's go talk to Josh Hermsmeyer. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program. Josh Hermsmeyer, he is a writer for Rotoviz, and he is the czar of air yard. In fact, his abstract on the predictive quality of air yards was recently accepted by MIT and their Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. So he may be a future presenter at the most prestigious sports analytics conference in the world. That's who's visiting the Roto Underworld radio show today. Josh Hermsmeyer, talk to me. Matt, super excited to be on the Underworld. I'm a longtime listener. I, I think I remember crisscross applesauce on your parents' floor <laughs> the first time. And uh, I think, in fact, one of my first memories of the show was Vivian complimenting you on the state of your garden. So while this may be my first time on, I feel like I've been here before. Wow, this is great. So you get the show. I love having people on to get the show. Let's get self-involved for a moment. (laughs) Who's your favorite guest of all time on The Underworld? Oh, my goodness. You know, one of the things I kind of troll tweet you on sometimes is when you had Kevin Cole on, one of my colleagues at Rotoviz, Mm. and I think he asked you if you were familiar with game scripts. That was that was by far one of my favorite moments on the show as well. 
because you can envision my face just contorting into just under what are you saying exactly i mean i love sarcasm and i love dry humor but he brought it at such a level i felt like oh my god this guy's just draining threes in front of my face <laughs> i need to raise my game so that was one of my favorite shows of all time in fact i think that's my favorite outtakes we do the outtakes at the end after we run the closing music. And if I had to pick an outtakes reel to play for someone, it would be the Kevin Cole show. So we talked about air yards. Your brand is tethered to air yards. When I see you tweet, I close my eyes and I think to myself, how will he be using air yards to illuminate the quality of player X? And sure enough, boom, I am enlightened by air yards through Josh Hermsmeyer. And the people at MIT were also enlightened. That's great news. You're the first person in my network that's had a, an abstract accepted by the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, and it's about the predictive quality of air yards. So can you give us a summary of why air yards are important and why they're so predictive? I think of air yards, I think of, you know, what are we, what are we trying to say? What, what is it a measure of? And, and, and the best way I've come to kind of think of it is that it's a measure of intent. And the very best measure of intent, the very best predictive metric we have is targets. And, uh, but, but air yards are not too far behind. And a good way to think of it, and I think it was Matt Friedman who, who kind of said it this way, it's like leveraged, it's how leveraged a target is, how many yards are behind a specific target. And when you combine the two, and I, I kind of figured this out a little bit late into the game, but if you combine the two uh, into something called weighted opportunity rating, you get a really predictive, simple to calculate back of the napkin metric that's uh, very predictive of fantasy points. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, air yards is really I mean, the, the whole backstory of it. It's, it's, it's not too terribly interesting other than what I added that other people hadn't yet was incomplete air yards and seems silly. It seems like something would be inconsequential, but turns out to be super important just because, uh, again, that's those are yards they wanted that guy to catch. He didn't for whatever reason, but uh, in a perfect world, he would have. And it's a great idea. It gives you a great idea of the mindset of the quarterback, the coaches, the scheme, who they want to get the ball to. There's some average depth of target data embedded in there as well. One of the great air yard success stories this year, Golden Tate. Golden Tate, number one in yards after the catch, 322. 91st in the NFL right now in air yards with 112. And what has Golden Tate done for fantasy footballers? A whole bunch of nothing. 11.0 fantasy points per game, 44th in the league. He's drastically underperformed his ADP. Why? Air yards. Air yards. Yeah, I mean, Tate, Tate is getting that volume that you mentioned for sure, but he's just not getting those leveraged targets like Marvin Jones is. I mean, in fact, this last week, uh, Eric Ebron had the highest Whopper weighted opportunity rating on the Lions. Jones was second. What? What? Whopper? Whopper, weighted opportunity rating. I called it Whopper. So that combines air yards and targets? Yeah, into one metric. It's weighted uh, heavily about twice as much towards targets. Um, but anyway, Jones was second, Riddick was third, and Tate was fourth. But he put up a decent game because he was highly efficient in this particular game. He caught most of his targets and he had his yak. But I think the error people were making when they went into last week is they were looking at like week one through four and they were saying, well, his production when Riddick and when um, Ebron were healthy before was, you know, garbage. So it's probably going to be garbage again. But actually, he had about the same volume as he did in weeks one through four. He just he just did better with it. 
Week one, seven targets, 41 yards. Week eight, seven targets, 42 yards. (laughs) The more Golden Tate changes, the more he stays the same. (laughs) If you want to be frustrated by a player, draft the player with significantly more yards after the catch than air yards. If you want to be pleasantly surprised by a player, draft the player with more air yards than yards after the catch an undervalued player in the top 20 in air yards. That's the type of player I'd be targeting, and that's who I was targeting a few weeks ago. His name is Kenny Britt. Kenny Britt, one of the great air yard success stories this year. Absolutely. Kenny Britt, uh, you know, I I wasn't really a huge fan of, of, of Britt's skill set coming into the season, and I certainly didn't have access to air yards coming in, so it's not like I, I pegged him as a great breakout because of any of those factors. I just didn't think Tavon Austin was very good. Last year, Kenny Britt, 460 air yards, only 221 yards after the catch. So a more than two to one air yards to yak ratio for Kenny Britt in 2015. Yeah, Kenny Britt, you know, it's interesting. Coming into the season, I didn't have all of this air yards data. Come Um, on, Josh. You got to fake it. I know. You always have access to all the information. That's our disposition on this show, and the guests on this show are all-knowing. You're the expert of air yards. There wasn't a time in the space-time continuum when Josh Hermsmeyer didn't have access to air yards. You've always had access to air yards, and you telling me that you didn't have access to air yards at one point is blasphemous, so stop thinking that way and start to train yourself before you go to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference that from the womb, you were born to talk about air yards. Fair enough. You know, I, I, need, to, I need to up my level of bombast and hyperbole, I guess. But, you know, when you, when you look at these numbers enough and, you, and you're trying to find out what's predictive all the time, you get, you get humbled really, really quickly. So maybe I, I default to that. Um, but again, I mean, with, with, with Britt, the thing, the thing about him is I, I, I was really looking at, at that situation. I thought Jared Goff would be the quarterback by now. I think a lot of us did. Um, I thought Tavon Austin would be terrible and wouldn't get as much volume as he has gotten. But, uh, you know, I did think Britt would have a good season. Uh, I think I, I thought that for the wrong reasons, which kind of, I think, makes me wrong. But, uh, you know, he is having a decent season. He is getting air yards. He is getting targeted. And I would love to see what happens if they can actually trot a healthy and effective golf out on that field. Have to believe that he's going to be better than what Keenum's been putting out there. Do you know who led the league in air yards per target in 2015? That is a good question. I do not know. Well, now we know you only recently had access to the 2015 air yards data. So it makes sense that you would be in catch up mode. I won't tell anyone. Everyone that's listening to this program, take a vow of silence. You cannot tell the people at MIT how ill-prepared to talk about air yards Josh Hermsmeyer actually (laughs) is. When I say his name, you're going to slap your forehead. The moment I drop this name on you, Josh, you are going to have an aha moment because, of course, this is the player that led the NFL in air yards per target in 2015. Are you ready? I'm ready. J.J. Nelson. (laughs) On how many targets? This has to be a small sample. Of course, J.J. Nelson is a small player with a small number of career targets, 27 targets. The bottom line is he's an exceptional downfield threat, and I love when metrics line up. 
when you look at his speed, 42840, 100th percentile on playerprofiler.com, and that equates to on-field performance in the form of air yards per target. And let's take a look at the J.J. Nelson situation. He's on by this week. No one's running out to their waiver wire to pick up the number four receiver on the Arizona Cardinals who happens to be heading into a bye week. But John Brown has had an incredibly challenging season, serious concussion in the preseason, and a mysterious hamstring injury that's related to a sickle cell trait. And John Brown's teammate, Michael Floyd, has the yips. The lowest catch rate in the NFL, the least efficient receiver we've seen in years, Michael Floyd has forgotten how to play the sport of football. So we have John Brown with mysterious ailments. Michael Floyd forgot how to play the sport that is his profession. The only fully functioning receiver behind Larry Fitzgerald is J.J. Nelson, and he's a big play threat. He already has a two-touchdown game on his resume. He's my sneaky waiver wire ad this week, getting him as the team heads into a bye, and then next week... He could be their number two receiver. Yeah, I'm on board. Nelson looks legit. Just last week, he had uh, 26% target share. He only had 12 air yards per target, so I'm not sure I'm completely on board with him just being a deep threat. He's not a short space guy, to be sure, but they're using him all over the field. He also has 45% of the team air yards. And like I said before, when you combine those two into one weighted metric, I call it Whopper, he led the team in week eight by a mile, well above Larry. Um, so, yeah, I'd grab him, I'd stash him, and I would see what happens uh, come, let's see, it's going to be week 10 that he's back. That's a great point you just made. You don't actually want the wide receiver with 9.0 air yards per target. That means he's a one-dimensional deep threat. It's encouraging that J.J. Nelson's air yards per target has actually decreased to 6.2 air yards per target this season. That's in the sweet spot. That's in the Kenny Britt zone. You know, when he's going out there and running those running those routes, I think, you know, he's he's just past the the, the first down marker. And and that's a good place to be. Uh, you know, that means that he's going to be a part of the offense. And uh, and that's really how I use air, air yards. When I was looking at all these metrics, I was looking at, you know, completed incomplete air yards, yak and air yards per target. The least predictive of all those components is air yards per target. It's uh, and Mike Clay. It's exactly the same as Mike Clay's conceptually as Mike Clay's A dot. It's calculated differently in that we use or I use uh, Elias Sports Bureau's charting data, whereas PFF has their own charters that they pay to do that. Um, so it's slightly different. You know, they might be off by a couple yards here or there on the charting. Uh, correlation is very, very high. But what's interesting is, is that as a predictive metric, air yards per target is pretty poor. But what it really helps you do, and this is something I've heard you talk about on your show many times, is it's, it's just really good at letting you understand how that player, how that wide receiver, tight end, running back is utilized, where he's targeted on the field on average, um, really helps you understand what the purpose he's serving in the offense is. And, uh, and so that's where I think the, the best use of air yards per target is. And really, when you get down to it, it's, it's efficiency metrics in general are, are, are always going to fall behind in terms of predictiveness than just raw volume metrics. Um, and why that is is an interesting question, but uh, that, that's my take on air yards per target. In an as-is state, efficiency metrics aren't that helpful. When we had Pat Mayo on, he asked us about production premium. 
And I talked about situation agnostic efficiency and the context in which it becomes powerful. Efficiency is the most useful when situations are changing and you're trying to extrapolate a player's performance in the face of increasing opportunity. And that's what we have with J.J. Nelson. The opportunity is increasing. So let's look at his efficiency. Yes, it's a small sample, but it's what we have. And J.J. Nelson's efficiency in a small sample is tremendous. Plus 13.4 production premium. That's 24th in the league. Plus 34% target premium. That's number five in the NFL. When Carson Palmer is targeting J.J. Nelson, J.J. Nelson's doing a lot more with the football than John Brown and Michael Floyd are. And if you want to go to the basic one, fantasy points per target, 2.04, that's 11th in the league. So if you take efficiency and you add opportunity, this is how a fantasy football breakout player happens. When I think of the Josh Hermsmeyer brand, I think of two things. Number one, of course, air yards. Number two, efficiency doesn't matter. Efficiency doesn't matter. Efficiency doesn't matter. But there are specific cases in which efficiency absolutely does matter. And we mentioned earlier, you write for Rotoviz. And I'm a huge fan of Rotoviz. I wrote a piece for Rotoviz telling people to give up on Ruben Randall and Justin Hunter in Dynasty. I'm very proud of that piece. Well ahead of its time. It was almost picked up by the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, but I just it was a very popular year for abstracts, just long story. But in the great film versus metrics debate, I ride with Rotoviz, I ride with the metrics people. But Rotoviz seems to take very extreme stances. It seems like when you read a Rotoviz article, they're either looking for the single skeleton key and nothing else matters. Efficiency doesn't matter. Athleticism doesn't matter. Nothing matters. But I like that. I like being intellectually challenged and always asking the question, how much does this matter? And that's the thing I respect most about Rotoviz. The writers are all in and committed to finding real answers. And if the answer is nothing matters, <laughs> what you're looking for is unknowable, that's fine. We're going to give you our findings and fuck it. Let's let the data speak for itself. And I love that. Rotoviz is becoming hugely popular. It's growing in popularity every day in part because of pieces like yours on air yards. It's the only place where a lot of fantasy gamers can feel intellectually challenged. But those conclusions are not underlined in crayon on Rotoviz, and that's what I appreciate about it. It's not paint-by-numbers fantasy football. But I also feel like if you read enough articles on Rotoviz, you can go round and round and round, and eventually you become less sure of yourself than you were when you started. <laughs> that's how it happens to me on Rotoviz. It's both exhilarating and frustrating when that happens and sometimes you come to the conclusion that shit i just read 40 articles and the primary conclusion that i've drawn is nothing matters zero everything don't draft any players <laughs> fantasy sports are a hopeless endless desperate abyss devoid of truth i have a new slogan for rotoviz rotoviz.com embrace your inner nihilist I say that with love. I love everything about that site. I love all the people that write on that site. There is one thing about Rotoviz that bothers me, though. There's one thing. Can I share it with you? Please. It's the term market share. Huh. 
There's no reason to add the word market. The word market is superfluous. I see so many fantasy analysts using the term market share to describe a player's share of receiving yards or receiving touchdowns. And you just need to say player X's share of receiving yards. You don't need to say player X's market share receiving yards. There's an extra word. I am obsessive compulsive about concise descriptions. And for some reason, the market in market share bothers me. How about you? I think that's a fair critique. I actually think pretty much everything you said is fair uh, about Rotovisit. And, and taking into account, of course, it's multiple people writing. So we're not one collective Borg mind all thinking the exact same way. But, uh, you know. Well, that's why different writers will spin you out into different directions. I, and I, I think that's absolutely fair. I think if you were reading us and you were trying to find a skeleton here, you're trying to find one path through the forest, you could definitely get confused. But I agree with you. Naming things is hard, Matt. Uh, and you do a great job at it, like hog great and the rest. Maybe it isn't perfectly descriptive of what you're trying to convey with that metric, but it's it's on the right track, right? It's not like you have to scratch your head and figure out what the acronym means before you can start to absorb the analysis. And I and I think it's, it's a huge problem with me. I, I made two metrics, Racer and Whopper. They kind of sound the same. But unless I write out what they are, no one's going to know. And it's, you gave us Whopper earlier. What's Racer? So Racer is super simple. It's just it's, it's basically yak plus completed air yards over total air yards. It's a way of understanding. You, th- you throw a yard at a guy, how many yards does he turn that into? Right. So it's like it's a conversion ratio. It's a, it's an efficiency metric. And it's one that doesn't suck. So I don't hate all efficiency metrics. In fact, I don't hate descriptive metrics. I think all stats have a use i just what i hate is being fooled right so like the game is hard enough to predict when you're only paying attention to the important things it's like when when tape grinders they talk about hip fluidity or whatever like i have no i have no reason to doubt them that that's important for that player but it, it doesn't get me any closer to winning and it's not you mentioned nihilism this isn't like cd carter level nihilism for me i mean it but it is important to know what you don't know. A guy averaging 5.3 yards per carry just simply isn't predictive of future yards per carry. But if you know that, then that's really useful. And I think that if you cut out the noise, that the part of an analyst's brain that's intuitive can find connections that the math and models miss, and, and it can be, and their analysis can become much more keen. I mean, if you're a, a genius level analyst, I am not. I need heuristics to simplify everything for me, then cutting out that noise will probably help you the most. And so that's kind of all I'm doing. I've been misled. I thought uh, adjusted yards per attempt for quarterbacks was predicted. It's not. People use DVOA in their models to predict defensive performance. You know, when we're trying to figure out who to start, it's absolute garbage for that. For that, no, I'm not, it's not a garbage metric, but for prediction, it's garbage, Matt. It's absolutely terrible. And so these, you, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop. And that that's kind of my message because I've had to discover it. And I think, you know, I'll show you the numbers. I'll show you the correlations. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Um, it's not an indictment of what these people are doing, but they're trying to tell the story of a season. They're storytellers. And whereas we're all trying to win our leagues, we're trying to, to do whatever we're trying to do, sports betting, DFS. And, and that's a completely different thing. Um, it has nothing to do with describing what happened on the field. I think I found the player for you. <laughs> a player with tremendous efficiency. But his situation isn't changing. In fact, it may be getting worse. And he's league bottom in qualified air yards. Can you guess this player's name? I, I don't know. I really don't. Corderell Patterson. Ah, oh, Corderell. 
Cordell Patterson, 87.5% catch rate, number one in the league. Why? Because his average depth of target is low. Yes. Total air yards on the season for Cordell Patterson, 41. Yeah. 41. That's 127th in the league, yet his efficiency has been tremendous. 2.25 fantasy points per target, number three in the league because... He's compiling yards after the catch, 6.4 yards after the catch per target. He's a bigger yet worse Golden Tate. And I talked to John Paulson last week, and we were marveling at his increased target share the last four weeks. Six targets, six targets, seven targets. Wondering aloud, is this sustainable? The answer was no. Last week, no surprise, three targets. Why? Stephon Diggs was healthy, he was off the injury report, and Minnesota lost its left tackle. So Sam Bradford has less time to throw, and he has better options in the passing game than he had in the weeks prior. That will squeeze the targets out of the Cordell Patterson equation, and if he's not the guy that they're targeting on the outside, if he's not the main guy, if if he's a guy they have to scheme touches for, it's a lot harder to scheme touches for players when you have defenders in your face. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, Corderell is a great use of air yards in that he was getting targets and targets are important, but they were not leveraged. There was hardly any air yards behind them. So everything he was doing was yak. Um, Yak is the least predictive of the components of air yards. Um, So it was easy to say this guy's a fade. A lot of his points came from a fluke touchdown. Um, And then you factor in all the rest of the great analysis you just gave with Diggs coming back, uh, the line being beat up. Um, Bradford probably overperforming and still only having an average offense with that overperformance. Um, it, it, it's easy to understand that um, there's only probably going to be one good fantasy asset in that receiving core, and the best bet is always going to be Diggs. There's one analyst in the football and fantasy football community who has been incredibly bullish on Sam Bradford for years. Inexplicably bullish. His name? Kean Fahey. Are you familiar with... The work of one Kean Fahey? I am familiar with him. I'm, I'm, I'm blocked by Kean Fahey. Shocking! I'm shocked to hear this! In fact, I'm going to start a new segment. I'm going to ask everyone that comes on this show if they're blocked by Kean Fahey. And me, I'm blocked as well. Do you know why I'm blocked? I have no idea. I mean, but I'm sure it's trivial. It's beyond trivial. Someone added a hashtag alien time capsule to one of his tweets, and he somehow found out that I originated that hashtag, so he blocked me. Mm. In thinking about him and how he has become a caricature of a fantasy football analyst, just blocking everybody with reckless abandon, it reminded me that I really want to create a parody account of one of the fantasy sports personalities. I want to do it. There are a number of fantasy sports personalities that need parody accounts. Would Kean Fahey be your parody account, or would you create a parody account of another analyst? I think I'd roll with Kean. I, I got blocked under different circumstances. I, I straight up called him an asshole, and, and so I got the block. So I guess it was deserved in a certain in a certain way. But at the same time, I told him he was an asshole. I said, I, I purchased your book on QBs, and I just wanted to take this time after I purchased this to call you an asshole because you, cause you're so mean and abrasive to your followers. But I think the best way to make a parody account of him would just be, you know, make a Twitter bot, tweets out, I don't know, gifts of clowns doing clown things, and then insults 
random followers and then blocks them. I think that I think that would be really well received by the community. My parody account would be a Mike Clay parody account. I think Mike Clay needs a parody account because Mike Clay went from being just a normal data-driven analyst that does great work, accurate rankings, just a grinder's grinder, right? Mike Clay. Five years ago, if I said Mike Clay, you'd think grinder's grinder. But the guy has become a caricature of a fantasy sports persona. This week, he tweeted out that the pro football-focused football staff would do a better job managing a franchise than Bill Belichick. Like That happened. And every time you challenge one of his conclusions, his answer is inevitably Jeremy Lankford. Jeremy Lankford. Jeremy Lankford. Do you think Tom Brady deflated the footballs, Mike? Jeremy Lankford. I tried to have a conversation with him about C.J. Anderson versus Devontae Booker, and his response was, well, where did you have Jeremy Lankford rank? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I saw those tweets in question, and uh, they, they did make me smile. And I also saw that PFF had to come out and respond to football outsiders who said that, you know, we don't make such statements. And the whole thing was kind of silly. And um, I'm sure that Clay probably um, regrets that tweet. But, uh, you know, you should ask him where, where he had Jay Ajayi, Ajayi ranked. As uh, I mean, you should get him on here and maybe do your, 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 your British Ajayi voice, because that's, that's one of the things I really love. Hi, Mike Clay. Where'd you have Jay Ajayi ranked in your preseason rankings? Oh, that was awful. That was really bad. Facing the Jets this week, aren't we, Governor? <laughs> Looking forward to seeing the Jets come to town, aren't we, Governor? <laughs> I don't know why I said Governor twice. All right, that was awful. I'm, that was a bad idea. I wish you hadn't asked that question. This seems to be the year of the rookie tight end. Out of nowhere, I mean, out of nowhere, no first-round tight ends, yet this is somehow the year of the rookie tight end. Hunter Henry is the number 13 tight end in fantasy, and this week we have Austin Hooper as a top 10 play, completely challenging the rule of thumb that tight ends take an extended period of time to develop. What do you think of Austin Hooper? Austin Hooper. Let me let me pull up Austin Hooper real quick. We're we're talking about a guy who has 11 targets on the season, uh, a TD and a whopper, which is that combination of target share and market share air yards of 0. 0.10. So, uh, I mean, we're looking at a guy who's lightly targeted. He's not getting a lot of opportunity. Um, that's really all I look at. Um, you know, moving forward, he may get some more. But thus far, he's not a guy I would put a lot of hope into. He has 131 air yards, Josh. That's 24th in the league. He's a backup tight end, but he's 24th in the league in air yards already. That's a good sign. Yeah, I understand. But uh, but Tammy only had 114 uh, completed air yards and 191 total air yards. And his whopper was .22. So we're talking about an offense, and this is kind of what air yards gets at, an offense that isn't really interested in, in funneling a lot of its passing yardage through the tight end position. And so, you know, the, the, the type of offenses where you would want to see a guy go are the ones that everyone was, you know, hawking at the beginning of the season to where Fleener ended up, um, maybe a little bit in Indianapolis. You know, th those are those are more, you know, target rich environments. Uh, Hooper is not a guy who, even if he fills in well for Tammy, that you would expect to be anything that you would want to roster um, in anything but a very, very deep league. Would you concede it's possible that you may be confusing cause and effect? 
that you're blaming the system on a failing of the player. It's not the system's fault that Jacob Tammy's Jacob Tammy. If you upgrade Jacob Tammy to Austin Hooper, the air yards and the fantasy production are destined to rise. Put yourself in the shoes of the Atlanta Falcons coach. You're going to call plays that require the tight end to run routes that best suit their skill set. I think this is a failing of so many fantasy analysts, and I'm glad you brought up the New Orleans Saints because I heard that in New Orleans, Drew Brees prefers to throw to the tight end, except when it's Kobe Fleener. Then he prefers to throw to the wide receivers. When he has an elite tight end, he likes to use the tight end. In the red zone, he likes to use the tight end when that tight end is reliable in the red zone. In Austin Hooper, we're talking about a tight end who runs a 4.7240. That's a 101.8, 66th percentile height-adjusted speed score and an 11.32, 80th percentile agility score. So he has tremendous size-adjusted agility, great catch radius, and we've already seen that he can get downfield when called upon. Don't you think that the packages that they're putting together for Austin Hooper this week will include a more aggressive route tree than they could implement with Jacob Tammy? That's the kind of analysis that I mentioned before where, you know, a very thoughtful, what I would call brilliant analyst could probably make a case or find the hidden connections to be on a guy when the numbers suggest you shouldn't. But your, your question to me was, why, why wouldn't they change the system for Hooper? I would just answer that with, well, why couldn't he overtake Tammy? If he was this good elite talent that they should be scheming for, why couldn't he overtake Tammy, who has been such a small part of the offense and has been a negligible portion of what they're trying to do? The NFL struggles to optimize the talent configuration of their starting lineups, incredibly slow to supplant veterans with young players, especially rookies. Look at Antonio Gates. The only reason Hunter Henry broke out is because Antonio Gates didn't play early in the season. If Jacob Tammy was out earlier in the season, we would have seen a lot more of Austin Hooper. But as it turns out, now is the time for Austin Hooper. I like to get excited about players, Josh. I like to find reasons to like players. I'm trying to find reasons to like players. And air yards are exciting. Air yards are a tremendous tool to find potential breakouts in fantasy football. And Austin Hooper has the air yards per opportunity you're looking for. Am I out air yardsing the air yards expert? Well, no, I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, again, where I'm coming from with air yards is I'm trying to read the coach's mind and the quarterback's mind. And that is what I think is sticky. Um, it's not the fact that he got a deep ball chucked at him once. It's that there was thinking behind why he got that deep ball chucked at him. And, you know, uh, Pianowski tweeted something out the other day that I, I really wholly agreed with. And that was that, you know, it's so much more important that you are able to kind of discern how coaches and players are going to be used on a field rather than evaluating talent to be successful in fantasy. And I think if there's anything good about air yards and anything predictive, it's that it's taking a little bit of that coach's brain and putting it on paper, uh, allowing you to analyze it in a way that's, uh, that's objective, um, that isn't fraught with narrative. And, and so when you inject narrative into it and, and try and make air yards into perhaps more than what they, what they actually are, um, I, I think you kind of you take away from from what what that was doing and the, the one predictive thing that it was giving you. I object to the static positional target distribution, the cookie cutter approach to projecting the production 
of new players that rise up the depth chart that are inserted into the starting lineup. And because I believe Austin Hooper is a better tight end than Jacob Tammy, I have to believe that the coaches are going to utilize him differently. That's their number one job. That's the reason they exist, is to call plays that maximize the talent on the roster. If we can't assume they're at least doing that, then they're completely useless. I also object so often to the coach worship, making the coaches the reason for the player's performance. I'm not running out to the extremes and saying, Kyle Shanahan is the reason Devontae Freeman is playing so well. No, I assume that Kyle Shanahan's doing his job, that he's calling plays that maximize Devontae Freeman's skill set. And through eight weeks, that appears to be what Kyle Shanahan's doing, calling plays that align with Devontae Freeman's skill set and calling plays for Tevin Coleman that align with his skill set. Seeing that through eight games, I can assume now that he's going to call some plays that align with Austin Hooper's skill set. And when I look at the workout metrics, when I look at his college dominator and college yards per reception, not an exceptional prospect. He's a third-round pick but so far when he's set foot on an NFL field all he's done is catch passes downfield 11 targets 11 catches and massive air yards per target so I like according to our metrics he's the most efficient tight end given a small sample size and now he's going to receive an influx of targets and I'm putting him in the top 10 I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it Josh I'm putting him in the top 10 and no one can stop me I absolutely respect when people have a a strong opinion about why a player is good. That isn't entirely based on efficiency. Um, You know, your, your, your argument, I think, is strong in that, you know, you've got a small sample. He was very good with that small sample. He, and I, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're not arguing that the efficiency will stay the same. You're simply arguing that because he was good on small sample, he will likely be able to do something with increased volume. He'll be better than Tammy. And at the tight end position, all you need is 12 fantasy points to be a tight end one. That's all it takes. Sure. You just have to be better than Jason Witten. That's all I'm saying he is. This is not a super hot take. He'll be better than Jason Witten this week. That's my crazy prediction. All right, so we have some more crazy predictions. I want to go rapid fire with you. Who is that one dynasty sleeper running back and that one dynasty sleeper wide receiver who's on your taxi squads that you don't want to talk to anyone about and you just want to keep it a secret? My dynasty sleeper right now uh, is more of a win now uh, guy, but who, who could eventually find his way into being a little more valuable next year? It's Walt Powell on Buffalo. Uh, even if he does capture the lead role in that offense like he has in the past week moving forward, he's going to be usurped by by uh, Watkins when he comes back. So again, we're talking deep dynasty here. We're talking, you know, big, huge taxi squads. Um, but I, I like what Walt Powell's been doing. He, he, he's leading that team right now in opportunity by a very, very large margin. Um, it remains to be seen if it's just a blip. But again, um, I am I'm happy to make my bets and hang my hats on things that are sticky and predictive. And uh, and that opportunity seems to be something that might stick around in terms of deep stash running backs for Dino. It's super tough. Uh, you know, uh, opportunity is everything. I mean, we think opportunity is big for receivers. Opportunity is absolutely everything for a running back. There's only one behind the quarterback at any given time. Typically, a fullback doesn't get any real opportunity to make a carry. So uh, picking one is, is really shot in the dark. But I, I'm going to go with uh, uh, Collins on, on Seattle. 
it's a muddled situation there. I don't think, um, you know, Rawls is really a long-term answer. Uh, Michael seems to be fritting away his opportunity there, um, even though I, I don't think the criticism is, is, is very fair or deserved. Um, I think Michael, if he, if, he, if he got a fair shot, if he didn't have Rawls uh, peering over his shoulder, uh, I think he could produce. Um, but again, I mean, he probably could just end up being just a guy too. Um, you mentioned athleticism. Kevin Cole did find that it does mean a lot for running backs. It's all that matters. It's all that matters for running backs, right? It's all that's the only thing that matters. No, it's not the only thing that matters. Opportunity is the only thing that matters, but athleticism, (laughs) athleticism certainly is a factor. Um, yeah, no. So it's an interesting situation there. Precise is, is, is really, is really coming on. Um, getting a lot more, uh, targets this past week and a lot more, uh, carries this past week. I think he out, out touched, uh, Michael. So Collins is a real dark horse, but he's the guy I would take. Right. Mine is Seth Roberts at the wide receiver position. He's one injury away from being a starting wide receiver with one of the league's most prolific quarterbacks now in Derek Carr. And every time Seth Roberts is given an opportunity, he plays well. Now, his efficiency metrics are not very good. You would love Seth Roberts and his negative 7.6 production premium, his negative 13.2 target premium on playerprofiler.com. <laughs> But one of the reasons why Seth Roberts' target premium is so low is because target premium compares your per-target production against the other receivers in the passing game and the other receivers in the passing game for the Oakland Raiders, Michael Crabtree, Amari Cooper. That's not really fair. Seth Roberts is an opportunity-driven stash. Nothing about him is impressive. His best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Kevin Norwood. He's 6'2", 196, so he doesn't have a high BMI. He wasn't drafted. He wasn't a college mega producer. The only metric on his prospect profile that I think is particularly interesting, college yards per reception, 21.4. So he's a big-time downfield threat, and he's someone who's developing into an adequate NFL receiver. You just take an adequate NFL receiver, and you give him starter snaps with Derek Carr, he's going to produce. Am I wrong? No, I'm all on board on that call. Um, although this is another, there's another place where correlation and causation could get confused. I think Derek Carr was garbage until he had Amari Cooper and Michael Crabtree to throw to. So to say that Seth will automatically be awesome because Carr is throwing to him, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm sure there's truth to it, but I'm not sure that it's you know quite that simple. Nothing ever is. But uh, yeah, I like that call. Derek Carr is very good, but he's very much helped by his wide receivers. But if you're scoring 8.8 fantasy points per game as the number three option, it's going to be well into the double digits if he becomes the number two option. My running back, I have two. Sorry, it's my show. I can do whatever I want. I have two running backs. Number one, Fitzgerald Toussaint. So I go with Fitzgerald Toussaint based on the Tim Hightower corollary. That in any given game, two running backs on a team can go down. That just happened in Kansas City. Jamal Mm. Charles, Spencer Ware, Sharkhandrick West was the number three running back on that depth chart as of week eight. And in week nine, he's the starter. Now look at Fitzgerald Toussaint. He's not impressive. Nothing about him is impressive. He doesn't have Kristen Michaels' workout metrics. He wasn't a workhorse at the college level like Alex Collins. 
He's just a guy who may be the starting running back taking snaps behind Ben Roethlisberger if something happens to Le'Veon Bell and D'Angelo Williams. Based on that alone, you stash a guy like Fitzgerald Toussaint in Dynasty because, as you mentioned earlier, with running backs, it's all about opportunity. You just want to throw darts at the right depth charts, and Pittsburgh's running game is where you want to invest. Another guy that's not as sneaky as Fitzgerald Toussaint is Daniel Lasco. Look what's happening in New Orleans. They fired Mark Ingram last week. They just said, you're fired. Just go sit down. Get out of here. No soup for you. And they gave Tim Hightower 26 carries, and he proceeded to do nothing. Why? Because Tim Hightower was Fitzgerald Toussaint before Fitzgerald Toussaint. A 103.1 19th percentile Spark X score for Tim Hightower. He is the dude guy running back prototype. I've never seen a negative 55.6 production premium in the history of player profiler for a running back until Tim Hightower at this very moment. Five evaded tackles all season? What? So Mark Ingram was just fired and Tim Hightower is a 30-year-old journeyman who is completely underwhelmed. Enter Daniel Lasco, an exciting athletic specimen on one of those offenses that you want to collect pieces for. 130.8 90th percentile spark x score for daniel lasco he broke the burst score on playerprofiler.com he's even more athletic than david wilson he was also very active in the passing game in his junior year at cal so he can catch the ball out of the backfield he barely meets our size threshold that we're looking for six foot 209 And thus far, he's been elusive. 38.5 juke rate. He's been the most elusive running back in a small sample size for the New Orleans Saints. Wouldn't surprise anyone to see Daniel Lasco ascend to become the starter on the New Orleans Saints at the end of the season, just like Tim Hightower did the previous season. And Tim Hightower won a lot of people the fantasy championship in 2015. Daniel Lasco could be this year's newly minted New Orleans Saints running back that helps you win a fantasy championship. But the big question is, what happened to Mark Ingram? Seeing Mark Ingram get benched in week eight was shocking. I think most of us believe that he was entrenched as the starting primary running back for the New Orleans Saints, but that's not the case, is it? Ingram is a strange case. He, uh, you know, in the road of his chat room, I think uh, someone mentioned that you know, he's, he's a guy that's just survived off of opportunity based on sunk costs, based on that first round draft pick. And they keep on trotting him out there. For me, I mean, if he's getting the carries, that's enough. I don't care why. I just care that he's out there getting the carries. But if you look back at last season, I had him on a few teams and he was consistent, right? He, he was he was decent. He never put up the huge game. You, you never could rationalize benching him, but he never won you a week either. But he was very good, Josh. 16.9 fantasy points per game was number two in the NFL in the weakest year for fantasy running backs ever. I understand that. But he was efficient. He was elusive. 37.5% juke rate last year. Breaking tackles all over the place. 83% catch rate. Mark Ingram was not good, great last season. This year, no. He went from a plus 10.4 production premium in 2015 to a negative 8.8 production premium in 2016. It may be the case that the New Orleans coaches 
Useplayerprofiler.com. <laughs> you know, I think that's actually evidence that you can't use efficiency to judge whether someone's good or bad. Hashtag good. Hashtag bad. It bounces all over the place, and it's so de- it's determined by the other ten guys on offense, what the defense is doing, the scheme, how good the passing offense is, all the rest. Uh, uh, but again, I mean, back to back to Ingram last year. I mean, uh, when he got injured, you know, it was Hightower that won you weeks. Hightower was amazing after Ingram went down. Those last four weeks in the in the uh, playoffs were just incredible. <laughs> and <laughs> and so I think you know what you were saying earlier about that offense. You put you put Lasco in there, and uh, and oh. you give him those opportunities. Yeah, I think I think you got a recipe for huge success. Please, oh God, please. Even if Mark Ingram was hashtag good at football in 2015, that doesn't mean he's not just a dude guy. You can flash an efficient eight-game sample in the NFL and have it be driven by randomness and your supporting cast. You're exactly right. A lot more running backs in the NFL are completely replaceable, just dudes, than anyone wants to believe. I'm going to list some running backs right now. You tell me if the running back I mention is just a dude guy. You ready? Ready. Mark Ingram. Dude guy. Spencer Ware. Dude guy. Isaiah Crowell. Dude guy. Kristen Michael. Dude guy. Lamar Miller. I like him, but dude guy. Yes, yes. Jordan Howard. Dude guy. And by the way, there was a recent quote by the Bears running backs coach, Stan Drayton, that provides the window that we've been waiting for into how the coaches think about the running back position. Are you ready for this, Josh? Far away. Stan Drayton heaped praise on Jordan Howard, saying, quote, Production overrules everything. There it is. There it is. They don't know what they're watching either. They don't appreciate efficiency any more than a fantasy gamer does. They're just looking at the yards in the box score and deciding who they're going to start every week. These are your genius NFL coaches, fantasy footballers. And yes, Jordan Howard is just a guy. What about Melvin Gordon? This is the best guy on the list, in my opinion. Um, but, I mean, just going by his results, if we're going by his production, based on his opportunity, you know, he's a middling guy. Um, but I think uh, of the guys on this list, he has the best opportunity to become something closer to special. Yeah. Melvin Gordon is not just a dude guy. He's better than that because he was much better than that in college. His supporting cast has betrayed him in the NFL, and yet... The San Diego coaches continue to feed him huge volume. And as you mentioned earlier, the huge consistent volume is indicative of talent. So for those reasons, I believe Melvin Gordon is in the upper percentile of running back talents in the NFL. Here's the last one, and it's going to hurt. Matt Jones. That doesn't hurt at all. Matt Jones is, you know, just this side of garbage. It doesn't matter. It just it doesn't matter. They have a good line. They have an efficient offense. And, uh, and when I say efficient, I mean they, they actually put string first downs together. They can march down the field on a whim almost. Um, and so when you get more opportunities because you're extending drives and you're not putting it on the ground all the time. And by the way, Matt Jones only has three fumbles. I'm so tired of this. You know, uh, uh, 
Cousins has five. He has five. Why weren't we talking about benching him? So, look, fumbles are random. You sh- they are not a, any kind of measure of a, a player's skill or worth or talent. Um, I think when Matt Jones gets healthy, he's going to be the bell cow again, or at least he'll be 60% of the touches again. And uh, because of that, that one and only fact, I think he's a decent zero RB guy. You draft the running back who you believe is going to get the touches and see what happens. Most running backs that are drafted in the second half of a draft don't end up producing for a full season. Shouldn't be a surprise. You already got two massive RB1 weeks for Matt Jones. You should be happy with what you've got already. Everything else is a bonus. So with running backs, opportunity and situation is the primary driver behind their production. And before the season starts, we're not sure how efficient the offense is going to be. And we're not sure how good the offensive line is going to be. It's an indictment of Mark Ingram that he's been inefficient, 3.8 yards per carry behind the best run-blocking offensive line in football. The New Orleans Saints offensive line has been completely reinvented, and Mark Ingram's been worse. That is the ultimate indictment of someone like Mark Ingram. But even though players like Mark Ingram and Lamar Miller are disappointing, we're still in the midst of an RB renaissance because a lot of those running backs at the top of the board, the best of the best, they're drastically exceeding their peers in the cohort. More than 10 fantasy points per game above the stream for running backs like Ezekiel Elliott and David Johnson. So given this, given the extreme value that the generational running back talents like David Johnson, like Le'Veon Bell, like Ezekiel Elliott are returning this year, is it now justifiable to take a running back in the first round to build a fantasy roster around a keystone running back in the first round and then go wide receiver heavy after that? If you're confident that the running back in question that you're taking in that first round will score roughly 90% more fantasy points than the guy you're foregoing taking, then it makes sense. The, the risk premium is accounted for. Um, there are other risks, you know, like he could lose his job, losing snaps to a timeshare. But I mean, this is a first round guy. So assuming he's a stud, you think he'll score David Johnson level points compared to, say, someone like A-Rob, right? Then it's worth the risk of getting that injury. Because even if he does go down, and even if it is serious, and the chances are <laughs> quite good that your stud running back is going to go down to serious in- injury, three and a half times more likely that a running back goes down to serious injury than a wide receiver. At least while he's producing, you get that value. Three and a half times? Three and a half times more likely to incur serious injury. Woof! It's it's out it's outrageous. It's outrageous, and that's it's a it's a big reason why Sean Siegel was so ahead of his time. It's intuitive though. They're in the line of fire. They're being handed the ball behind the line of scrimmage, and they're being asked to run against a wave of 350-pound monsters that are trained to kill them. So why would anyone be surprised that running backs sustain major injuries at a much higher rate than the players playing on the perimeter? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. And it's, again, it comes back to, we talked earlier about, you know, brilliant analysts and, and people who can connect the dots without models and math. And and Sean Siegel was one of those guys that he intuitively figured out that this was the, the optimal strategy. Zero RB. Yeah. Zero RB, yeah. He didn't need to do, you know, any any, any fancy studies. And, and so when I went back earlier this season and I tried to quantify it. Yeah, when you talk to someone from Rotoviz, we just call it the strategy and we forget <laughs> we have to specify zero RB. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to be fair, uh, 
things have been going really well for the folks who did take gambles, in my view, unwarranted gambles. Um, and this is probably something you could speak to, Matt, because I know you were big on David Johnson all offseason um, because of that, his athleticism, because of his situation. I, I looked for any empirical evidence to support a guy with his resume coming forward and doing what he's done. And I simply couldn't find it. Um, I looked at half season splits. I looked back over the past 20 years and looked at ADP and, and I, I looked at, you know, the, the, the resumes, the guys that had gone at his ADP, they, they dwarfed his. And so that's why I say the models of the math could take it so far. But if, if you see something other people don't and you can cash in on it, then you'll always do better than, than the models in the math. Um, but I, I still... I think the process was sound. Zeke and and David Johnson are the product of a running back landscape that is barren. And they went as high as they did, in my opinion, simply because there just was no other good options. And um, and so it seemed to me like people were reaching. Right. That's wrong. <laughs> They're amazing. They're, they're two great players. But specifically... As it relates to Ezekiel Elliott and David Johnson, you were wrong, but you could make that same argument that people were reaching for Lamar Miller. They were reaching for Todd Gurley. They were compromising, taking, drafting Lamar Miller, a fake bell cow tethered to Brock Osweiler. (laughs) Todd Gurley, the running back in the worst possible situation. (laughs) Rationalizing taking those players in the first round was a mistake. So that criticism should absolutely be laid at the feet of those drafting the Lamar Millers and the Todd Gurleys. Now, you are particularly adept at laying criticism at the feet of those who analyze football. At one point before you wrote for Rotoviz, you were highly critical of Zach Whitman from Field Gulls. Do you remember the piece you wrote on your blog about Zach Whitman? Oh, uh, how could I forget? Uh, to summarize, hmm. you criticized Zach Whitman for not sharing more about how he back calculated the spark formula on field goals. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, I mean, it's fair, but it's not complete. Uh, my, my real problem with it was that he back calculated a metric that Nike came up with. They spent a lot of time putting it together. Um, and good for him. Smart guy. He deserves whatever kudos he gets. But when you do that, when you put that data out there, other people are going to want to analyze it. And you can't analyze pictures. And I know it seems a strange kind of critique of someone. But if I want to run analysis, do a regression and see, does Spark actually predict anything that we care about in football? Um, or is it just purely descriptive of a, of a player's athleticism and doesn't really help us? Um, I can't do that with pictures. And, and to be perfectly honest, and, and no offense to the gentleman, I'm sure he's a really sharp guy, and I think he's an engineer, uh, but it, it, what he did was actually pretty rudimentary. I mean, it was, it was a basic multilinear regression. It was not a big deal. If you have the data, it takes about 10 minutes in R. And, and, and to kind of hoard it the way he did, when he's got this cool information that people would really, really be excited to learn more about, to really be excited to leverage and, and try and understand football better. To kind of hoard it away like he did just struck me as beyond the pale, to be perfectly honest. And so uh, I wrote what I wrote. You eviscerated him, Josh. It, w- it was a. You took him down. Well, I mean, I know some other folks who have taken people down before on uh, podcasts. So I, I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wonder who you're talking about. 
and, and look, and you came to his defense. And, and like I said, I, I feel like this is my second time here. You dedicated a whole show to saying how mean I was. And so I and, and I couldn't argue with you, Matt. It was mean. But at the same time, I thought it was in its way justified. I wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to have a reckoning with that blog. And it sounds like you're not backing down. Oh, no, I haven't taken it down. Have you apologized to him or have your paths crossed since? No, they have not. Maybe at the MIT Sports Analytics Conference. You never know. Oh, you know, we, we critique players. We call them garbage. Um, I think we could at least kind of hone those same guns on each other once in a while and, 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 not, and, not, t- and not take it so goddamn seriously. Yes. I mean, come on now. Yes. 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 Thank you. Someone else is saying it. I just want a royal rumble of fantasy analysts, and then we can get in front of the microphone and talk shit. That's what I want. Come on the show, Mike Clay. I dare you to come on the show. Get in front of this microphone. Why did I do that? Your takedown of Whitman, that was the work of an outraged instigator. Edgy. I love having the edgy analysts on the show. We need more edgy analysts on this show. But I have to say, talking to you live, I can't imagine you as a metrics freedom fighter. Since you've started writing for Rotoviz and your abstract was accepted by MIT, have you softened your disposition? No, I don't think so. I think uh, I'm going to be the first guy who's calling QBR absolutely overrated. I'm going to be the first guy that's saying DVOA is not doing what it says on the tin. Um, But you step back from the criticism and you look at the big picture. What Zach did was good. What DVOA is doing, if it's done, if it's if it's interpreted correctly as a descriptive statistic, is wonderful. I don't like being fooled. I don't like people telling me that you should pay attention to this particular thing because it's going to help you win your league when it it will do the exact opposite. That's frustrating to me. I think it's I think it's fraudulent. So those are the things that get me fired up. So how are we doing with PlayerProfiler.com? What I love your site. What you guys do that's so incredible is that you have pretty much everyone. Uh, the most obscure prospects. You've done the work to collect the data. I know the operations is a lot of work and for by and large, it's free. And uh, I've just been I've been a fan from the very beginning. Now, you have you have a tagline at the top that says only the predictive statistics. And I don't know that's entirely correct. But by and large, I got nothing bad to say about what you do. Now, the tagline is one player every metric, but it's not every metric. No one takes that literally. We focus on metrics that predict performance, like air yards. Are you familiar with air yards? <laughs> so good. You mentioned that most of it's free. There's one part of it that's not free, and that's the data analysis tool. And we built the data analysis tool for the needs of someone sitting in your chair, the ability to go out and just pick metrics and then download them in a comma-separated format Take the data, shape it the way you want, study it the way you want. That was the primary goal of the data analysis tool. The reason why that's subscription-based is because it requires incredible processing power and sophistication behind the scenes to create a database schema that has all those metrics back through time and available to be queried in real time by an unlimited number of users. And I don't think I've ever taken anyone behind the scenes to that degree and explained why data analysis was created and why we charge for it. 
And that's completely fair. If time, effort, and actual money goes into providing a service, stats, whatever, uh, you should charge for it and you should pay for it because what you're getting is a hugely time intensive, uh, intensive thing. And what you get out of it, if you put any real effort in is, is new knowledge. And, and so, uh, I, I completely support that. Uh, I, I give away all the air yards, but you have to have a subscription to to, to Rotoviz. I just think that's fair. A lot of effort goes into it, and uh, if if Zach or anyone else had said, "Hey, you know, give me give me ten bucks, I'll give it to you in CSV format," I've been like, "Yeah, let's go, bro, absolutely." That's it. That's all it is. We've been talking shop for the last fifteen minutes. People actually want to know which running backs to pick up off the waiver wire this week. <laughs> This week's tough. <laughs> we haven't talked about anyone on the waiver wire yet. <laughs> Rapid fire. Rank these waiver wire running backs. Are you ready, Josh Hermsmeyer? Rob Kelly, Sharkandrick West, Antone Smith, CJ Proceis, James Starks, Tim Hightower. Rank them and bank them. <laughs> Rank them and stank them. You do like a beer pouring sound effect for that. Rank them and flank them. <laughs> Rank them and gank them. These are tough. Help you. Sharkandrick West, number one, because he's starting this week, right? Well, so is Kelly. So, and and Starks may be back. So these are the questions. It's still early in the week. It would go Kelly, West, Starks. Then I would put in Procise just because I think he's going to continue to be a big part of that passing offense. And my goodness, if he keeps cutting in to the t- a touch share of, uh, of uh, Kristen Michael, you know, who knows? Uh-oh, spaghetti Kristen Michaels touches. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and then probably Hightower. And only because I can't decipher the backfield, Smith and Barber come up the rear. I started Barber last week. I'm still a little sore. I'm a little salty about it. Um, I might do it again. I don't know. Is that why you said Barber up the rear? Right up the rear. And you're sore? Fuck that guy. <laughs> He's not very good. <laughs> Anton Smith at least has game-breaking speed, so I'd have to put Anton Smith ahead of Tim Hightower and James Starks this week because he's actually going to get meaningful touches, just like Sharkandrick West and hopefully my man Rob Kelly because Rob Kelly has the best last name on the planet. And spelled correctly, I think. Kelly with two E's, baby. Josh, I'll get you out of here on this last question. Who you got? Tony Romo or Dak Prescott? <laughs> Dak all the way. It's an interesting conversation with people who say that you, the team should abandon Dak after the success they've had. I think a lot of times, uh, as fantasy analysts, we sit here and go, well, who's, who's going to put up the better numbers? But I think if you abandon the Rook after all he's done, I think you lose the locker room. And, and I think that is important. You lost me when you used the word Rook. <laughs> You went an hour and a half with me without any douchey words or phrases, and you're you're signing off with a fuck you, Rook? Come on, hit me with sublime right now. That's what I really want from you. Okay, all right, I know what, yes. Okay, making fun of my vocabulary. Okay, that's it. Show's over, Hermsmeyer. Get out of here.
it doesn't matter. It just, it doesn't matter. We focus on metrics that predict performance, like air yards. Are you familiar with air yards? It doesn't matter. It just, it doesn't matter. We focus on metrics that predict performance, like air yards. Are you familiar with air yards? It doesn't matter. It just, it doesn't matter. Uh oh, spaghetti. Don't do that. Fuck that guy.